There is no woman in the country who we are not trying to reach. These are makers. This is makers. Las primeras. These are makers. This is the makers. This is the Makers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda McCall, and today we're talking about frogs. Now, I know what you're thinking. Amanda, I thought this podcast was about humans, not amphibians. I hear you, and I get it, but just bear with me. I'm going to tell you a children's story that I heard a very long time ago. A group of tree-climbing frogs held a contest to determine the best climber. The frogs decided that the one who was able to climb to the top of the tower on the king's castle would be the winner. The contest began creating such a sight that a crowd gathered. People began calling out, they'll never make it. As some of the weaker frogs pulled out of the competition, the people's cries became louder. The tower's too tall, they said. Even some of the strongest frogs started to tire out and fall to the ground. One frog, however, made a slow and steady progress upward. The cries of the people grew more vocal the higher it climbed, but the frog just kept climbing higher and higher and eventually reached the top. The frog climbed back down and everyone gathered around it, cheering and shouting questions, wanting to know how the little frog did it. I'm so sorry, the little frog finally yelled. I can't hear a word you're saying. I am deaf. The moral of the story is pretty clear, even to a little kid. But I didn't truly appreciate it until years later, when Makers sat down with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and asked her to share some career advice. Here's what she said. The most useful advice given to me by my mother-in-law on the day of my marriage. His mother took me into her bedroom and said, Dear, there is a secret to a happy marriage, and I want you to know it. Every now and then, it helps to be a little deaf. And with that, she handed me um, a packet of Max earplugs, which are still the best earplugs one can find in the drugstore. That advice has stood me in good stead in dealing with my colleagues today on this court. You just tune out. You don't hear the unpleasant. For most women living in America, the story they are told about their own worth does not resemble what they know in their hearts is true. You can try to tune it out, but you do often feel like you're in some kind of feminist twilight zone. If society is constantly telling you that you're wrong, that you don't matter, that you have no power, and that these are the messages you've been hearing your entire life, how can you possibly think otherwise? Well, today, we're going to hear from two women who did just that. Few authors have changed American literature and deepened our understanding of American identity as Sandra Cisneros. Her book, The House on Mango Street, is a groundbreaking novel about a young Latina girl growing up in a poor neighborhood in Chicago. It has sold over 6 million copies and has been translated into over 20 languages. It is required reading in elementary, high school, and university curriculums across the United States. And it all started when Cisneros attended the very prestigious and very white male 
Iowa Writers' Workshop. The famous Writers' Workshop was not very good for me and for other people of color and for women. This sense of, like, if you talked about the things that mattered to you, everyone looked at you like you were poor, demented, uneducated. You just were not up to par. It was that always that sense of silence in the room that meant, oh, brother. But there was a moment when I got really angry, and I said, I'll show you. I'm going to write something that you can't say I'm wrong. And anger, I think, is great if you don't use it to shoot yourself in the head. And I used it to write the book that I didn't see in the library or in our classrooms. The advice I'd give to a young woman is she has to be chingona, you know? She has to be a fucker. And, you know, you have to use that in a way, in a good way, of, like, not using it against yourself. You have to say, I'm mad as hell. There's no book written about my neighbor. I'm going to do it. Use that something negative to a positive result. And that's how House of Manga Street was born. Cisneros courageously moved beyond her frustrations and into solutions. About 20 years earlier and much further south, Marion Wright Edelman was about to do the same thing. Here's her story. Marion Wright Edelman is a renowned activist who has been fighting for the rights of children for the last 40 years. Edelman was born in 1939 in Bennettsville, South Carolina. The youngest of five children, her mother and father, who was a Baptist minister, provided her with strong values and steady support. All the external messages of the segregated South told me as a black child I wasn't worth much. But I didn't believe it because my mother and father always made me believe that I could be anything. I had lived with injustice all of my life and always hated it. And I was used to being excluded. I was used to kind of being shut aside. I was used to being not admitted to the library when I was a little girl, and I always um, was testing everything. So there was never a time from the time I could toddle or think that I didn't hate segregation, and these things build up. The hatred of injustice and belief in herself that she established at an early age would eventually come to define Edelman's life and work. After graduating as valedictorian from Spelman College in 1960, Edelman's most valuable lesson on law and justice in America did not take place within the ivy-covered walls of Yale, but during a visit to Greenville, Mississippi in 1961. We went down to try to convince people to register to vote. There were huge crowds, and they brought out the police dogs for the first time, and all of my friends were arrested. I could not get into the courthouse to do anything. I had only a few months of law school, but they were trying my friends without lawyers and without bail. That was it. That consolidated my absolute determination that I'd get through the next couple of years, and I'd come back to Mississippi to practice law. And so I felt very lucky because Mississippi was the crossroads of change. And probably the most exciting time you could be there, and I was home. After graduating law school, Edelman moved to Mississippi to practice law. She became an attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund and served as the director of their Jackson, Mississippi office. In 1965, Edelman became the first African-American woman to pass the Mississippi State Bar Exam. There were no other women. I don't think I ever saw another woman lawyer any place in the four years that I stayed in Mississippi. I never thought about being a first of anything. I just kind of did what I had to do to get through um, what I had to do each day. I was trying to practice law. I was trying to change Mississippi. People were sharecropping. They didn't have enough to eat. They lived in shacks. They had no rights. And fear was palpable. Edelman immediately got to work filing dozens of lawsuits in Mississippi courts on behalf of poor families. 
I went into court where all the lawyers were sitting, all white male lawyers, and it was as if a Martian had walked in the house. And I tried to shake hands with every one of them. None of them would shake my hand, um, but that was all right. While working as a staff attorney for the NAACP, Edelman traveled to Washington, D.C. to testify before the Senate on the state of poverty in Mississippi. Senator Bobby Kennedy, who at the time was running for president, was especially moved by Edelman's testimony. I had invited them to come up and see the empty cupboards and the, and the people who had nothing, and um, they said they'd do it. And that turned out to be very, very important because Bobby Kennedy came down, and with Bobby Kennedy came press. And we went to visit poor sharecroppers, went through the houses, saw no food in the refrigerator, and went to a house where there was a baby with a bloated belly sitting on a dirt floor in a sharecropper shack. And he tried to make that boy, that baby, respond. The baby did no response, and I was very moved by him. And I just watched him become palpably angry um, in seeing this child who was clearly um, malnourished nourished and even worse. Seeing the true face of poverty in America firsthand enraged Kennedy and inspired him to take action. And he came out, there were no television cameras, and he came out and he was furious and got a determination that he was going to get food down there and, 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 and through all the rest of those houses and saw all the people with empty cupboards and empty refrigerators and children who'd had no lunch. And he, Robert Kennedy, became a very big proponent of, of, of expanding food programs. And it led to major, major reforms in food programs in the 70s. Having established herself as a prominent civil rights lawyer and a fearless defender of the defenseless, Edelman began working closely with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was pretty clear in 1966, 67, that you had to address the social and economic problems if the political and civil rights were going to have meaning. I was horrified by how slow everything was and how little progress. And by this time, the country was preoccupied with the Vietnam War and the money was going there. Johnson was preoccupied. And so people were forgetting what was going on in these poor communities across the country. And I shared my frustration with Robert Kennedy and told him I was going to see Dr. King on the way back to Jackson. And he said, tell him to bring the poor to Washington. He was by this time running for president for the Democratic nomination, and we needed to let them people see the poor, hear their needs. Edelman traveled to King's office in Atlanta to relay Bobby Kennedy's powerful message. Dr. King had a very, very modest office in Atlanta, and he was sitting by himself always trying to figure out what is the next step to take. And he was often depressed about what to do, he was depressed about the war. He saw the poverty was around him. And when I told him what Robert Kennedy had said to bring the poor to Washington, his face lit up. They made me think that I was an angel delivering a message. And he went home and told Coretta that, you know, that this was the right thing to do. So with Edelman's help, Dr. King started organizing the Poor People's March on Washington, an attempt to pressure Congress to pass legislation to address the employment and housing issues of the poor. But by the time the march was held on May 12, 1968, Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King had both been assassinated. The day after Dr. King was assassinated, there were riots that had broken out all over America. And I went out into the schools to talk to children, tell them not to loot, not to get arrested, and not to lose their future, risk their futures. The little boy, about 11 and 12, looked at me straight in the eye and said, Lady, what future? Ain't got no future. Ain't got nothing to lose. And I've been trying for the last 40 years to prove that boy's truth wrong. Edelman took action. She founded the Children's Defense Fund, the nation's first lobby devoted entirely to children. 
the chief national security issue facing this country is the failure of this nation to invest in its children where you've got a majority of all of our children who can't read and write and compute at grade level. Who's going to be our workforce? This is what's going to topple us as a nation. It's our moral Achilles heel. It's our economic Achilles heel. And I am more mission-driven than I have ever been to say, wake up, country. I began the Children's Defense Fund because our children needed it. They need defense. They're the poorest group of Americans. They're the most neglected group of Americans. And they have no voice. They have no vote. They cannot lobby. And they are the key to America's future. And yet we waste our seed corn for the future every day. Since it was founded in 1973, the Children's Defense Fund has been a leading national voice for disadvantaged children and families. But even after decades of activism, Edelman's quest for justice is far from over. I thought I would be out of business by now. But it's harder and harder despite the progress. And here we are today. A minister from my home county called me um, from South Carolina some months ago to tell me he just talked to three black teen kids, 11, 12, 13 about, and asked the first boy what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said he wanted to work at McDonald's, the second boy said he wanted to be Spider-Man. And when he was pushed for a real-life occupation, couldn't think of one. And the third boy said, I don't have to worry about when I grow up because I'm going to be dead. And he grew with, with a stick on the ground. I finally said, my goodness, after all these years, those children are still out there and those black boys have a one in three chance of going to prison. And one in five of our children's poor, one in three black children poor. And um, the prison pipeline sucking children into oblivion. And the whole premise of the American dream is that your children are going to do better than you did. We've got a long way to go before this country does right um, in creating a, an even playing field for its children. But I'm never going to give up. And neither should any of you. So get out there, little frogs. Go climb to the top of that tower and change the world. Thank you for listening. And to learn more about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sandra Cisneros, Marion Wright Edelman, and hundreds of other courageous women, go to makers.com. Makers.